Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 627 with Matt Norman. I think you're going to love this chat. I had with Matt because we go deep into the particular thoughts you're having and how those impact how you feel and perform. It's nice in that we actually took the time to get that specific and in there. So you'll learn one, the thinking pattern that saps our energy. Two, two questions to keep your thoughts from overwhelming you. And three, how to keep criticism from phasing you. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, you can drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP627. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP627, short for episode 627, if you're curious. And it's the letters EP and the numerals 627, if you're curious. You can also just go to awesomeatyourjob.com, click podcast, and then get to it that way. And while you're visiting awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our nifty resources, such as the full search text of every transcript ever, if you click the magnifying glass, every episode tagged by the competency covered, as well as the topic and subtopic to find your episode, and the gold nuggets, which lets you review the summary wisdom from Matt and all guests who've come before him in quick emails that come to your inbox with each new episode release, as well as access to the vault archive. We call that the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here is Matt's story. Matt Norman is president and CEO of Norman & Associates, which offers Dale Carnegie programs in Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Through Norman & Associates, he helps people think and work together more effectively. Matt's mentorship has helped Fortune 100 corporations, nonprofits, and entrepreneurs change the way they engage with their employees and clients. Matt has been named the Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal 40 Under 40 list and the Minnesota business Real Power 40. Big thanks to Matt for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Matt. Matt, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Really excited to be here with you. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And first, I want to hear about your fondness for Latin dancing. Now, people that can't see you, you don't, you don't look Latin to my eye, but you never know, actually. What's the backstory here? Thanks for asking, Pete. When I was in college, I spent a year in Ecuador, and I had to choose from elective courses, including Latin American dance. And at the time I had no dancing background being of Nordic 
Minnesotan background, I thought that that might be a helpful cultural experience. So I ended up taking the class and loving it and actually spent a lot of my time down there doing as much dancing as I could. And few people know that one of my email addresses is uh, Bailando Norman, which is Dancing Norman. I'm not Uh that great at it, but I love it. And so is that for the VIPs who know that one and others don't? Or how's that work? <laughs> it's actually for the the spam email oh. signups. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've got that too. Mine is PeteMJunk at gmail.com. Yeah. Now everybody knows, but I probably won't see the message if you email it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then when I give it to people, I don't want them to know I'm giving them yeah, a junk right. email address. So I try right. to space it out like, oh yeah, it's P-E-T. <laughs> E-M-J-U-N-K at gmail.com. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, telemarketers love having those long ones that you have to spell out. So yeah. Oh, that's fun. Well, well so that sounds like a healthy habit right there is keeping your inbox clean. But you've yeah. got some some broader speaking patterns you've identified of healthy people for, in particular, in your book, The Four Patterns of Healthy People, how to grow past your rooted behaviors, discover a deeper connection with others, and reach your full potential in life and business. We like all of those things. So lay it on us. What do you mean by a healthy person? And how did we determine that there are four patterns of them? Yeah, thanks, Pete. So by the way, when you say that we love those things, I I can say as a frequent listener of your podcasts, I really appreciate the ways in which you and your guests help me and others develop healthier patterns. And when we say healthier patterns, we mean not just physically healthier, but mentally and emotionally healthier. And through my coaching and life experiences, I've realized that At some point in life, we develop ways of thinking and behaving, usually as an adaption to our circumstances. And it typically works well for a while, therefore we repeat those ways of thinking and behaving. And at some point, many of us realize that those ways of thinking and behaving don't work anymore because of a relationship that we're in, a job that we're in, or realize that we're overusing some of those ways of thinking and behaving. And so that we just, we get stuck. And so because of that, we have a choice. We can either remain stuck and surround ourselves with people that don't challenge us and don't cause us to self-confront and grow, or we can grow. And because of that, I wrote the books to help individuals and organizations grow to live with uh, more joy and impact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, yeah, all of that sounds swell. Joy, impact. Well, the, so let's talk about these ways of thinking and and being just to make that really clear. Can you give us a, an example of, of a very common pattern that, let's say, maybe let's do a contrast. So let's hear a common pattern of, of thinking and operating that um, is found in, in healthy people, but uh, not so often in, well, I don't know what we want to call it. Do we want to call them unhealthy people or... Pre-healthy people. <laughs> what's the what's the term we're using? Less functional, less optimal. Yeah, absolutely. And so, before I get that example, I can just put it into context that there are four pattern areas, as you alluded to: how we think, how we relate to others, how we view ourselves, and how we operate our make choices about our lives. And so, to use a common example in terms of how we think, many of us ruminate on things that drain us of energy rather than releasing 
things that drain us of energy. Okay. And in the book, that's one example where we talk about the value of metacognition or thinking about our thinking so that we realize that when there are thoughts, in the book we use the metaphor of leaves falling in a river and to think of our thoughts as a stream or a river of everything that's going through our mind and the green leaves that are falling in the river are thoughts that energize us and red leaves are thoughts that drain us and many of us will fixate on red leaves because they worry us we think that by fixating on them we're going to change them we're going to improve the situation um, but we find is that the healthiest people top performers will allow those red leaves. They won't ignore them. They'll acknowledge the red leaf is there, but then they'll let it float down the river and they'll choose to fixate on the green leaves, those leaves that are energizing us. And so it's just, a, it's a very common pattern to ruminate rather than release. Yeah, well, well I mean, that, that's huge right there in terms of, well, just the energy that can liberate in terms of, you think about being awesome at your job, that, that could very well, make the difference between do you have two good energized hours to do great work or do you have six, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the course of a day based upon just how much of this you're doing. And, yeah. and I've lived both of those. Um, so, so yeah, let's, let's go right there right now. <laughs> um, so, so the best approach, if, if there's um, an energy draining situation and, and maybe let's make this all the more real in terms of maybe uh, someone said something, you found offensive at work, like you didn't, uh, like you felt unappreciated by what they said. Like, uh, hey, Matt, how about we, we just do, uh, you know, one more pass at this and I think we'll be ready to go. And you're like, excuse me? <laughs> I think <laughs> we've already done six passes. That's just yeah. pretty darn good. Uh, and I'm tired of this. And I, I thought it was excellent. And your critiques aren't very useful. And they're frankly annoying. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. If, I've, if you're listening to this and I'm collaborating with you on something, this is purely fiction for the record. <laughs> <laughs> but these things do come up. And so let's just say that that's the situation. You're ruminating on it. And so you say that the healthy approach is, is to not push it away or ignore it or, or run from it, but rather to allow it to pass through. What are we doing in practice when that happens. That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're acknowledging that it's there. We're, we may interrogate that thought briefly, not ruminate, but we may interrogate, you know, and be curious about that thought rather than defensive. And that, this is, we're starting to, to get into the relationship pattern in the book, which has to do with how we respond to criticism and also how much we internalize what people think of us or how people, uh, whether people approve of us. And so there may be a moment where we want to be curious and interrogate, well, why, why did that bother me so much? Or what truth is there that's there? But then we would let it go. We would let it pass. And metacognition and neuroscience would suggest that sometimes it's actually valuable to physically release it, you know, write it down in a, in a journal or a piece of paper and crumple it up and throw in the trash. Or sometimes literally what I'll do is kind of toss my hands up in the air, you know, as, as like I'm releasing them or, or like I'm dropping the mic, you know, to physically send a message to my mind that I'm now releasing you. And sometimes it may just be as simple as just saying, I, I choose in my mind, I, I say, I choose to release that thought. And then perhaps uh, focus on thoughts that are also true and perhaps more fulfilling than that draining thought. Okay. Well, so then, so I like that. So I guess the answer is probably it varies, but lay it on us. So, I mean, 
Just how much time do we care to be curious, to interrogate, to investigate? Because at some point, I guess we might fall into the ruminating uh, zone there. So how do you think about that in terms of how much time is not enough time and how much time is too much time? Yeah, I think two litmus tests. One would be how many, you know, am I repeating the same thing over and over again? Am I sawing sawdust? As Dale Carnegie says in his book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, uh, Don't Saw Sawdust. And the other thought is, is this bringing me consolation or desolation? Oh, so Ignatian of you, Matt. Yes, exactly. Good pickup. I was just going to make that reference. Yeah. So this idea that as uh, Ignatius of Loyola says, we many of the thoughts that we may have or experiences bring uh, a, a sense of co- it consoles our spirit, even though it may be hard or difficult or problematic. There's still the sense that it's constructive, it's connecting to where I should be at this moment. Whereas there are desolate feelings and thoughts where we literally feel empty, we feel that we're losing ourselves or that we're losing. Our, our our spirit or our energy around this particular topic. Does that, it sounds like you mm-hmm. have experienced or thought about that reference also. Uh, well, I, I have a book about the discernment of spirits that I've taken me a long time to finish because <laughs> it's me, it's dense. I, I gnaw upon it and think about it. So well, that, that is some handy litmus tests distinctions there. So then in this example we've used, you know, it might sound like well, well, you tell me. I'm going I'm to take a crack at the acknowledging and interrogating and being curious and letting it pass. I might say, boy, I feel frustrated that we've already been through many revisions on this document, and yet this guy wants to do even more. I kind of feel like I am stupid or a loser or inadequate, at least in his eyes. Uh, and relative to what I'm producing here. And that feels disappointing to me because I thought I had created something awesome that I had spent a lot of time and effort already in doing. And the subsequent set of recommendations, I think, frankly, could make it worse. And I don't feel like doing that. Mm. Okay. So that's me acknowledging. Mm-hmm. This is exactly how I feel about the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so then interrogating and being curious might sound like, um, why do you suppose he feels the need to go through so many revisions Mm. or why would I feel like a loser based upon the input of, of one person Mm -hmm. who's not that important to me? Mm-hmm. And then maybe follow those threads like, oh, maybe he's, you know, he's new in his role. He's worried about making a good impression with his boss. Mm. Maybe it's because I really like things to be optimal at their peak performing levels. Mm. And uh, it just sort of demotivates me when I'm when I think we're we're moving away from that. And uh, that's kind of what's up. Mm. So, well, you tell me I- I've tried to acknowledge and to interrogate and be curious, would you recommend I do that any differently or in more depth, less depth? Pete, that was really powerful. I thought that you did two things there that were really strong and then one thing that you didn't do. So I think one thing that you did that was really strong was that you weren't blaming in that 
thought pattern. Okay, like that jerk face. What? Where does he get off doing that? <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. You know, I, I get so much disrespect in this culture. I tell you, he's always after me. Why does he have to make me, you know, all of that is pointing at the other person as opposed to looking at your own thoughts and feelings, which is the second thing I think that you did really well there is that you were processing your authentic feelings. You know, you were saying, I feel disappointed. I feel I feel, you know, even thinking about some of the identity translations of those feelings, like I, I feel stupid. I feel, you know, like I'm missing the mark on this. And so that, that seems really authentic to be saying those things. So processing those, those ideas. So not blaming and then having authentic uh, expression of your emotion is really powerful. And then the, the thing that you didn't do on that was you weren't repeating yourself. You know, once you process the thought, you moved to a level of deeper interrogation, or you moved on to a subsequent thought, but you weren't circling back to say, yeah, you know, I am stupid. Now I'm, I must be, who else thinks, what, what other evidence is there that I'm doing stupid things around here? Why would he say that? Why would he say that? You know, and so those are kind of the repetitive thoughts that we'll often have that uh, are less helpful. So the fact that you were making forward progress and that you were not blaming and you were authentically expressing your emotions, I think, was all really powerful there. Oh, cool. Well, well thank you. Well, well, hey, it doesn't always work out that, uh, that healthily in my brain. Uh, <laughs> and so let's go there next. So let's say you do find yourself circling. You do find yourself blaming. You did the acknowledging, the interrogating, the being curious, and then it's looping on back. What do we do? So one consideration is what might I be attached to from an identity standpoint? And this gets into some of the psychology around the false self versus the true self. You know, typically we have this false self that psychologists will say is the self, the image that we want projected to the world. You know, the image of what we want, how we want other people to okay. see us. I want people to see me as highly competent here. I want people to see me as not making mistakes, et cetera. And we say it's false because no one's perfect, you know? And so to cast this kind of image of perfection out to the world or that we think the world expects of us has a, has a degree of falseness to us versus authenticity. And so for us to think about what are the parts of my false self that I'm holding on to too tightly? You know, what are the parts of my identity? In other words, do I think that I need to be accepted in order to be okay? Do I think that I need to be viewed as competent in order to be okay? Do I think that I need the approval of this particular group? Or do I think, do I need there to be harmony in the environment for me to be okay? So there's a number of questions that we, as we interrogate that we can start to realize about how we've maybe over-identified with this particular situation and therefore may, may need to consider if we're holding on too tightly to parts of my false self that I'm trying so hard to project to the world. Boy, yeah, but there's a lot of good stuff there. So, so the pattern I heard you say, uh, patterns, is do I need blank to be okay associated with what's you're attached to in your identity? And so I guess... Ideally, I would like for there to be nothing <laughs> in that zone. Like, I don't need anything to be okay. I'm okay just by being alive. And you can draw, we're getting deep here. I mean, you could draw like your fundamental worth or value, whether it's the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights or, 
or or like a a faith or wisdom tradition, like I'm I'm made in the image and likeness of God, or or something like that. That you believe I have intrinsic value, worth, dignity, just because I am or I am a human. That seems like the ideal place to be, <laughs> but often we're not there, and we and there's some other things attached to it, such as I do need to be perceived as whatever, or I need to. Uh, look like a winner or or make uh, $125,000 annually, like fill the blank. So if if we've identified some of those attachments, what do we do with that? Yeah. Well, maybe a process of revisiting where our true value comes from, to your point, revisiting what uh, tradition or or source we look to for our true value. The Harvard School of Negotiation says that often when we're in a, when, when we're really thrown off balance, they call it an identity quake. And it's often quake. where a quake, you know, like oh, an earthquake, like, earthquake. Like, okay. <laughs> like, like the ground under us is shaking. Often we can feel this most when we just are really uh, upset about something, or maybe we are triggered in a way that other people might not be triggered by, you know, we just get more upset or more reactive than someone else might get. It may be a sign that we have to look at what is it about this that may be questioning something that I think is central to my identity and does it really need to be central to my identity? So I had this earlier in my career, I was in an operational role where I was responsible for getting deliverables out on certain timelines and because of a number of factors, we were behind schedule and we had customers calling and complaining. And I remember that our head of sales came to me and not just me, to our executive team and said that our team was not performing. And frankly, the message was that I ought to be fired. Oh, oh, right there in front of everyone. Okay. Yeah. I mean, basically he was going through channels of communication that came around back to me where I knew that this was the message that he was communicating. And at that time, I remember being so upset at him and at the situation, far more upset than I think many people might be when they were missing deadlines. I was so upset. And the reason is because I I developed a strong desire throughout my life for approval from other people, particularly people that I viewed as key stakeholders for my work. And I viewed this vice president of sales as a key stakeholder of mine. And so it literally was an identity quake for me, for me to get this feedback that I ought to be fired or that that, that our group ought to be reorganized because of our inability to meet these deliverables. And so as opposed to having a productive reaction at that time in my career, I remember sitting in meetings and just constantly wondering whether I was saying the right thing, whether I was doing the right thing. And as a result, in one meeting in particular, I had a panic attack where Mm. I I couldn't continue speaking. And I had to leave the meeting because I became so physically taken down by this identity quake that had turned into a series of of, uh, unhealthy ruminations. So all that goes back to, again, not just the realization of those red leaves or those un draining leaves that are falling in the river. But the source of those leaves often has to do with the way I view relationships and the need for me to project this idealized image onto those relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so that's a huge insight in terms of of understanding that. And I suppose, can we dig into some detail in terms of, of how does one 
divest oneself of these attachments and return to, uh, you know, the source. And because it's, it's tricky, like, I, I think once we, we can get to a place where it's sort of like, okay, I know I feel the need to fill in the blank, you know, yeah. look productive, competent, kids, be rich, get a promote. Yeah. And I don't like that is true, but it is. What's my step-by-step to uh, freedom there? Yeah. So the book really goes through a number of exercises that we can do to make progress in that area. And again, one of them would be this thought process of realizing that, okay, when I have identity quakes around that, or when that, that need triggers me, rather than ruminating, I can release those thoughts. That's number one. And then number two is I can decide in this relationship that I'm going to differentiate myself. In other words, this is another concept in psychology that rather than absorbing the anxiety around me, that I would separate my emotions from how other people may be feeling. I would decide that I'm going to own my emotions and not let other people control my emotions. And so we may need to, in our relationships, decide that I'm going to create some emotional separation here with my boss or with this VP of sales who's really anxious and really challenging me. I may need to decide, just take a deep breath and decide. I say to myself, I'm not going to let him control my emotions. I'm not going to let him control how I feel about myself. And then finally, start to reestablish where my value comes from and operate in patterns that will affirm my worth or affirm my source of value. And we can get into a little bit more of what those operating patterns might be, but I think there's exercises that we can do. We've probably experienced it, you know, spending time with people that reaffirm that, that whisper verdicts in our ear about who we really are and why we really matter or doing, reading certain types of books, what, you know, whatever we uh, do that these practices around us can really affirm for us where our value comes from and who we really are. Well, well, yes, uh, let's talk about some of those patterns here. I'd also love to zero in on, say, hey, I'm not going to let him control or dictate my emotions. So I think that's a good, you know, bit of awareness and and conviction to hold. Uh, Nonetheless, I I think it's quite possible that, sure enough, you know, that VP of sales, you know, comes a huffing and puffing again. You may feel some stuff uh, again. So what do you do kind of in the heat of battle? Yeah. Well, so it may require a few things. One is naming what we're feeling. I thought, Pete, you did a great job earlier in the conversation of naming, okay, I'm feeling this way right now. I'm because of this conversation, I'm feeling disappointed, which is causing me to feel stupid. Are those true thoughts? You know, so part of it is that naming of the emotion and of the thoughts that we're experiencing. I'd say point number one. And then point number two, we may need to create some space, you know, just uh, separate from the situation somehow and uh, breathe through that situation and uh, just frankly calm our amygdala, you know, that part of our brain that's often wanting to hijack our thought process. And uh, once we can sort of move to a more prefrontal cortex, kind of thoughtful, intentional thought process away from that kind of emotional reactive state, we can start to think more clearly about what else is true here. What is true about my identity? 
What are other verdicts I'm getting? What are other data points? You see, we have these cognitive biases. We, economists tell us that we have heuristics, these mental shortcuts that cause us to draw conclusions about things that may or may not be true about our environment. And, and I'm sure many of your podcast guests have in various ways talked about many of those cognitive biases and mental shortcuts that we have. And we need to challenge those and say, what are other data points that we have that that I have that I can look at? Who else is appreciative of the work that I'm doing? What is good about the work that I'm doing? Do, is it the only data point, this VP of sales? So there's a number of steps that we can do from, as I said, naming the thought or the emotion to separating and breathing through to try to move from the amygdala to a more thoughtful response. And then challenging those cognitive biases to try to look at what else is true. What else can I pay attention to here? Well, you know, that's a great phrase. What else is true? My realtor used to use that a lot in conversation. I wonder, wonder where he got that. (laughs) That's an interesting turn of a phrase you keep using. Uh, But, but it's handy in that it's, it really, I think often our, our brains are kind of like question-answering machines at times. And so that's the powerful question when you're in it, and, and that could seem to be all there is, to really point your, your brain elsewhere in a really helpful, productive way. And then when we talk about the releasing and the shifting away from the amygdala, you know, we had another guest talk about like, you know, writing something down on paper and, and lighting on fire or, or throwing it in the trash. And, and I think for me... It's, I guess I often think about releasing something as in that thing is going to stay in one geography and I'm moving to another. So it's sort of like, I'm going to go into the bathroom. I'm going to deal with that thing. And then I'm going to leave that thing in the bathroom (laughs) or I'm going to go for a run and I'm going to leave it on the treadmill or on the trail or in the shower. I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a deep refreshing shower. And then it's like, I am a new man from pre-shower to, to post-shower. And so, so that's kind of how I think about releasing and, and, and shifting, and it's quite handy. And any other pro tips on the releasing? You said you just sort of mic drop or throw it in the air? Well, I love the ideas that you just gave. The other piece that I think is important to bring into the conversation is community. You know, healthy community that surrounds us where with other people, we can release. You know, I think there's something very powerful about meeting with a therapist, a counselor, a dear friend who's willing to let us share authentically and uh, share at perhaps a deeper level of the emotions that we're experiencing and even some of these more challenging thoughts around how that confronts our identity attachments. And as we share those things, for someone else to say, I hear you and not try to fix us, not try to rescue us, not try to minimize the situation, but someone who's willing to just say, I hear you, that's really hard. Uh, Somehow, I think there's this therapeutic process that occurs where we're able to more easily release those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for talking about the the community and and the people side of things. You've also got some perspective on managing our own schedules and energy patterns. How do we do that? Well, I think this is the foundational pattern for all the other ones, because when we're drained or tired, it's much harder for us to think productively. It's it's more tempting to ruminate. It's more tempting to, as you said earlier, make our identity about not just my intrinsic value, but my intrinsic value plus, you know, whether I get approved from my boss or whatever else it might be. So it's we find it's particularly important through the coaching that I'm doing and the research 
that we manage, first of all, our sleep and our nutrition. And there's been a lot of research on this recently, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have read or listened to some of this research from, for example, the Stanford School of Sleep, where they talk about you know the fact that 99% of human beings need between seven and nine hours of quality sleep. And quality suggesting that we need to manage screen time, chemicals, you know, caffeine, alcohol, and find ways to put ourselves in a position to optimize our sleep as we're going to bed, doing things, routines like stretching and things like that. So, you know, starting with just the consideration of how much quality sleep am I getting? And, and then how am I managing my energy throughout the day? You know, realizing Daniel Pink in his book, When, uh, talks about the science of perfect timing, that there's certain times of the day too when we need to do things where we're more vigilant. And actually, while we're uh, mentioning books, I would also suggest to listeners that they, if they're interested in this, I think David Rock's book, Your Brain at Work, is, is perhaps my favorite book when it comes to these topics because David Rock talks about just what's going on in our brain when our energy is down and how much less vigilant we're able to be about managing our thoughts, managing our responses and relationships, et cetera. Well, uh, so I'm a big believer in this energy stuff. And <laughs> I remember the first, uh, first couple of years of the podcast, my two longest interviews were both with sleep doctors. So it's like, oh, I guess that tells you something. I was like, I've got one more question and one more question and one more question. <laughs> I think I listened to one or both of those. <laughs> <laughs> so sleep is huge and, and I'm a big believer. Any other particular best practices in bringing more good energy to work in life? Well, we talked earlier about reinforcing and reminding the true verdicts about your worth and frankly, what's, what's true about the data that's coming at us. In other words, you know, we get all this data, we're getting feedback from our boss and we're getting feedback from our coworkers and from our partner and, you know, all these different people are giving us feedback, you know, in various ways in which they're responding to us. And as we mentioned earlier, we can have all these cognitive biases about what's true and, and do I ruminate or overfocus on some of those, some of that feedback. And so to, reinforced through the podcast we're listening to, what we're reading, the journaling that we're doing. And part of that as a best practice, I think is, is blocking time to make that happen. I think right now in particular, it can be challenging in the environment in which we're operating where a lot of us are working from home and there's, you know, everything's sort of blending in all the parts of our lives sometimes feel like they're blending into one another, but to be able to compartmentalize the parts of our life to say, now I need to go into 30 minutes of reading, or I need to go into 30 minutes of listening to this podcast that's going to reinforce what's true. It's going to cause me to be more curious in a helpful way. It's also going to reinforce who I am and why I matter. Yeah, I like that a lot. And we've gotten better at that lately in, in terms of just like in the middle of the work day, I'm just going to do some not work. And, uh, and my work is actually better for it in terms of quality and quantity. And it took me a while, I think, to break through the barrier of, no, I need to be a good, productive worker and not, you know, sleep it on the job, like napping or, or whatever. And so now I say it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it really is true. I call goofing around, whether it's, I don't know, playing a game or whatever, while at work 
part of my creative process, you know, you know to try to say it in an artistic way, like I'm wearing a beret. And that helps me sort of push through past my resistance of, no, I need to be a diligent worker now. It's work time. Therefore, it is time for work. So lay it on us. If, if folks feel either, I got too much to do, Matt, that's crazy. I couldn't possibly, you know, do not work during work hours. Or they say, no, no, I just need to be a, a productive, high output person. How do you help push past those bits of resistance? Yeah. My, I came home recently and my wife said, how was your day? And I said, that was a great day. She said, why? I said, because I got a ton done. Uh-huh. And she said, is that how you measure your day? <laughs> it just stopped me in my tracks. I thought, oh my gosh. You know, I think part of it is that, you know, going back to what we value when we get into the whirlwind of our work is we think that checking boxes or like, you know, the game of whack-a-mole, you know, where it's like knocking the moles down or responding to emails. We think that that's what's most important. And, uh, you know, as several great thinkers have illuminated, like Clay Christensen in his book. Oh, I'm listening to that right now. Are you, you measure, you measure your, life? your life? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's just this realization that perhaps I need to distinguish between what I want now and what I want most, you know, and the realization that sometimes what I want now is the immediate gratification of responding to an email or the gratification of shipping something or finishing a project. Now, that may require a discussion with our leader. It may require a discussion with other stakeholders in our lives to say, you know, what I often want now is the immediate gratification of responding to an email or, you know, whatever the case may be. But what I want most is to being to create this value for the organization or what i want most is for this to happen in our relationship or what i want most is for me to become this in my career can we together agree that that's not just what i want most but that you're willing to endorse that or come alongside me in that so that at times i may need to appropriately say no i may need to turn off email i may need to back to a couple of years ago i took email off my phone because i realized that often what i wanted now was to respond to that email whereas what i wanted most was to spend time with people that were most important to me or have quality time for myself so i think it's the question of what do I want now, which is often that immediate gratification versus what do I really want the most and getting other people around me to support me in that? Mm, that's a great distinction. Thank you. Whew. Oh, there's a lot to chew on here. Uh, but Matt, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I, I think the only thing I'd add is that all of this re- requires a growth mindset. And, uh, you know, I know, Pete, that you're all about growth mindset. And when we talk about growth mindset, we're thinking of Carol Dweck's research at Stanford, published in the book Mindset, you know, where they talk about the continuum from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And it, you know, it really, for us to it change the way that we're thinking and behaving, unless there's a complete crisis and we, absolutely cannot move forward. It usually requires some level of self-confrontation. And that's incredibly difficult because we're all wired to self-protect. We're all wired to survive. And in many cases, these patterns are so ingrained in us. So I think we have to each ask ourselves the question, how willing am I to self-confront and grow? And what's a vision I might have of myself if I were willing and able to self-confront and grow. I think that's the starting point. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, this concept of, of growth is 
really resonates with me. And so, you know, a quote that I've often repeated around this book is that patterns are inevitable. Growth is optional. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Certainly the research around growth mindset, I think is probably my favorite, been my favorite study over the last several years. As, as with you, Pete, I also am really into studies and research around uh, the brain and particularly how the brain operates under pressure and fatigue. And in David Rock's book, Your Brain at Work, I really appreciated the study where they talk about the ability to say no or inhibit our response. It's sort of like the the you know the ability yeah. to say no, I'm not going to check email or no, I'm not going to eat that cookie. And they talk about this the the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, which sits right above our our temple or our ear, and it's responsible for braking, you know, like uh, the brakes on a car. And the the study suggested that the more we use the brake, the more it reduces its effectiveness. And so that's why kids will often realize with adults that if they ask five or six times for something, by the five or sixth time, the adult will relent and say, okay, fine. You know, or if we keep mm-hmm. asking ourselves, should I eat that cookie? Should I eat that cookie? Well, it looks really good. Should I eat it? By the fifth or sixth time, we'll relent. And what the study showed was that we we really have to veto quickly and immediately when we're trying to be vigilant about something like not checking email or saying no to a request that someone has, because the more we ruminate on it and question it, the more we're going to tire that ventrolateral prefrontal cortex and the harder it's going to be to say no. Yeah. Well, thank you. That That's big. So <laughs> I'm just imagining if like, if, if it's like, oh, maybe I should check Facebook or, or the news. It's like, it sounds like the right answer there is just like, no, no, you know, just like, <laughs> done. <Stop. laughs> it, is, it is cut off. The boat is burnt. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Take it off my phone. And how about a favorite tool? I really like this tool of blocking time, like we talked about earlier. Now, that's not an actual tangible tool. The other tool, Pete, that I really appreciate is uh, I just really appreciate the notes app on my phone. Uh, David Allen in The Art of Getting Things Done talks about having your mind like water and just whenever we have a thought, getting the thought out of our brain so that we're not thinking of it. And that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. So a tool that I love to use is a simple tool that pretty much all of us have handy. And that's the notes app on our phone. And that's every time we have a thought, well, I wonder if I should do this, that we would just put it in a, a category of notes or Evernote or whatever note tool someone might use and just get it out of our head, get it onto a note so that our mind can remain like water. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, favorite habit? Getting up early. Now, I know this differs based on physiology, and Daniel Pink talks about this in his book, When, that not everyone is an early riser. But increasingly throughout my life, and when I analyze the most successful people who have the most successful habits, I find that they get up early, and as a leading indicator of that, they manage their bedtime. And they manage their bedtime well, as we talked about earlier, so that they're managing screens and alcohol or caffeine or whatever else is going in their mind so that they can go to bed on time, get enough sleep to wake up early. Because uh, for most people, the earlier parts of the day are when we're most vigilant and most productive. And so what will lay it on us? What is your, your bedtime, your wake up time and your bedtime process? Yeah. 
So I wake up at 4.40 every morning. And to back that up, I just have to get seven hours of sleep. So on an average, so I really work hard. I'm going to bed between 9.30 and 10. Typically, 9.40 is the seven-hour mark. So I'm really fixated on that 9.40. And so that means backing out further. I take about 20 minutes to stretch and read something that's calming before bed. So I'll sit on the floor next to me. And I'll stretch for 10 minutes. I have a foam roller that I'll use. And I'll also make sure that I'm reading something that's going to be productive, but calming. And, and, and then I'll also make sure that there's no screens within 30 minutes of going to bed that I'm avoiding at all, uh, at, at all costs. <laughs> Basically, any screens except for to set the alarm on my phone. And then I try to stop eating by 8 p.m. and uh, try to do as much digestion as possible earlier in the evening. And then I'm an intermittent fasting person. So then I'll continue to fast until noon, which is kind of a whole nother topic. But I just like to not put anything in my body in the morning so that I can be totally vigilant and focused when I wake up. Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. This idea around growth and being willing and able to self-confront, I think is the most common idea that I'm in conversations around. And then uh, second to that is having authentic conversations, as we talked about earlier, is the ability to really share honestly about how we're feeling. So to grow, confront, and share honestly about how we're feeling. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? MattNorman.com is a great place to go, or you can learn more about the book at fourpatterns.com. That's the word for patterns.com. And uh, people can also connect with me on LinkedIn. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? My challenge for all of us is that we would self-reflect on a regular basis, really look at our patterns, the ways in which we're thinking, relating to others, viewing ourselves and operating our lives, and not just resign ourselves to a fixed mindset to say, well, this is just the way I am. Well, you know, Matt, you don't know my job or you don't know my family or you don't know my personality, but rather to really continue to challenge ourselves and say, yeah, I I do have some patterns that are pretty ingrained in me, but maybe I could change. Well, Matt, this has been a treat. Uh, I wish you lots of luck and, and health with your people and your patterns. Thank you so much, Pete. It's an absolute honor to be with you. I loved Matt's point about rumination so much in terms of just checking yourself. Dare I say before you wreck yourself, was that iced tea, ice cube? Well, that wraps up. The questions that determine whether you're just being curious or you're ruminating, which is not so helpful, is, hey, am I repeating the same thing over and over again? And if, if you are repeating it, hopefully it's good, right? Like I'm repeating this over and over again because I'm so excited about this new opportunity and it makes me feel great to imagine it. Yeah? Well, then you're not ruminating. But if it's like, well, no, it makes, brings me desolation. I'm bummed out. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm T.O.'d. <laughs> about the situation. Well, then you're ruminating and hey, uh, check yourself and adjust that so that your mental rumination pattern is not sapping your energy. Sometimes it's easier said than done, but boy, I tell you, the more you practice, I've seen this, whether it's a mindfulness practice or going through some of the particular tactics that Matt outlined here, the better. And I have on many occasions, actually, since my conversation with Matt here, caught myself and said, hey, you know what? This is rumination. It's not helpful. It's making me angry. (laughs) I am going to go ahead and 
let go of this. And if I need some extra help letting go of it, I do. I get physical with it. That's been handy. So I hope you also find that useful. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP627. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe to catch our next guest, Daniel Scrivener. Daniel not only has the most impressive, expensive microphone that any guest has ever brought onto the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, but he also brings some fun insights. We take a bit of a different approach. We, we sort of follow his career journey from college dropout all the way to being the head of design at Square, doing design at Apple, to now being a CEO and an angel investor and pull apart some of the insights along the way for his journey. So it's a bit more of a a narrative focus, and I thought it was fun. I I hope you'll find it useful. That's Daniel Scrivener on the next episode, which you'll catch automatically when you push subscribe. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.